Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our institutions are failing and ideas for fixing them. In this week's episode, we are discussing the role that ideas play in our politics. Do ideas matter? And if so, how? Should our politics be more principled? Or do we need more parochial horse trading to get things done? These are some of the questions that we are asking in this week's episode. I am James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I'm Julia Azari, Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, welcome back, guys. I'm, you know, I hope everybody is uh, staying safe and, and, and healthy during these crazy times. Um, but I'm, I, I know this, these are very crazy times, but I'm very excited about our conversation today. I think it's incredibly important. And I think it gets to the core of how we understand politics and the institutions where we participate in politics. But I am even more excited about our special guest, Senator Mike Lee. I, I first met Senator Lee almost 10 years ago when he was elected to the Senate in 2010 to represent the state of Utah. And prior to that, Senator Lee served in many different roles. He was a clerk for the U.S. District Court for the District of Utah. He clerked for Sam Alito when he was a judge for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals and also as a justice on the Supreme Court. And Senator Lee has served as an assistant United States attorney for the District of Utah and also as general counsel for Utah Governor John Huntsman. I had the privilege of working for the senator in the Senate. I just want to say as we begin this conversation that he is a first-class scholar statesman and a long tradition of scholar statesmen going back to people like James Madison. He takes institutions seriously, he thinks about them deeply, and he thinks about the problems they face. And I respect him so very much, and I, and I wish the Senate had more people like him. So Senator Lee, welcome to Politics in Question. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so our question today is, do, I, do ideas have consequences for how we think about politics? Or, or do interests determine our ideas? Or is there a mix uh, between the two? And, and Senator, what, what do you think? Uh, what, what's on your mind? I don't think you can separate one from the other. It's a little bit like the distinction between cognitive and normative thoughts. You, you can't really tell where one ends and the other begins in many circumstances. But I think it, it is certainly possible and it, it is always ideal uh, for ideas to influence institutions and even to affect and ser have sort of a, a mediating influence uh, on interests and, and the way that interests have an impact on institutions. Lee, what do you, what, what do you think, Lee? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I agree with the senator that it's really hard to disentangle uh, them. I, I think I'm a little bit more on the consequences have ideas than the ideas of consequences side. And I'm going to betray some of some, some some progressivism here by citing the progressive philosopher John Dewey, who kind of equated ideas with, with forks and knives and that they're they're tools. And in, in politics, I think ideas and, and to some extent, ideology and principles really uh, become ways to to unify political coalitions. And, you know, I mean, I think there's a sort of way in which ideas are I don't want to get too metaphysical here, but I'm going to that ideas are the things that we can collectively agree on at, at a given time. And they change over time and to the extent that they endure, they're, they're useful to people who are in power and to the extent that they change, they represent changing power structures. But I mean, I do think that, that they can take on a life of themselves, but they also often serve power. Julia, which which Lee do you want to agree with or disagree with here? <laughs> uh, wonderful. Yeah. So I actually I want to raise a somewhat different question about ideas, which is whose ideas? And I want to point out a kind of meta point about what happens when we talk about ideas, which is that it tends to then quickly become a, a conversation about elites. So either people in position to make governing decisions. Um, we talk about the Constitutional Convention, which I think we've got on um, in our plans for later in our conversation. We're talking about people who were actually there in that context. Um, we're talking about writers and scholars, but even folks who don't have the, the luxury that we all do of talking about ideas as a core part of our main job, 
do have ideas, right? And do do have ideas about how power flows through their lives and about, you know, what affects their lives and how they would like to see the world and, you know, what, what hopes they have and fears they have for the world. And those are ideas too. So that's kind of the, the caveat I have about thinking about politics in the world of, of ideas is how do we take not just the kind of currents in scholarly conversations or the currents in elite conversations, but the ideas that lots and lots of different people might have about their lives and about politics and turn that into something meaningful in, as, as Lee um, as Lee Drutman said, a kind of collective shared notion of of who we are as a as a polity and what are what's at stake in our political debates. I would argue that I, that is something that our institutions I think are meant to at least do or at least be the place where we do that thing and I would just say for our listeners as we get into this uh, conversation now after stating our priors that this this questioner debate it really arises out of the progressive era and the scholarship at the time of people like Charles Beard, who argued that the founding was best understood as the result of the framers' kind of economic self-interest, their narrow self-interest. And if you wanted to understand the founding, you had to understand their 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 economic self-interest. And many scholars would reject the Beardian thesis beginning, I guess, in the mid-20th century. Uh, but the, we still have this debate between progressives and classical liberals or classical Republicans that has continued to this day. And I'm not sure one or the other is necessarily right or wrong. I think they all matter. Interest matters, certainly. But when we talk about interest mattering and when we talk about self-interest, I think we need to think about it more than just economic self-interest. Because if that's what we do, if we have a materialistic view, politics quickly becomes merely about wheeling and dealing, right? It's where we just tally up what everyone thinks, what their interests are, and we can determine the outcome based on who has power at that time. But politics is much more than that. It's how we transcend our own narrow perspectives to understand the world and get a glimpse of the universal, to discern truth, at least in terms of a kind of collective civic truth. Uh, you know, we cannot understand the Constitution, I don't believe, and our politics without understanding the intellectual environment, the social environment in which it was written. Politics is not uni uh, utilitarian. It's not something that where we just merely reckon with consequences, as Hannah Arendt would say. It isn't just cause and effect. You know, our institutions are not just means to ends that are determined by our economic self-interest. And so I typically think that ideas matter and they shape how we understand and see the world and they shape how we conceive of our own interests. But as we, you know, on that note, let's let's jump into this and let's start with the founding. We'll come up to kind of contemporary politics today. I typically start with the founding. I know that the senator does as well, but, but Lee Drutman, you know, you and I oftentimes will disagree on things. And obviously, I think this is an, one of those areas where we probably disagree. What, what's your view of the founding? Well, I, I mean, I think certainly ideas mattered, but I mean, to, to follow the, the process of uh, the summer of 1787 is to follow a process of a lot of horse trading and a lot of compromises and, uh, you know, a lot of real politic. Uh, politique. The you know, I mean, the uh, many of Madison's most important ideas, like the veto over state laws, proportional representation in the, in the Senate, I, I think you know had had principles behind them, and they were traded in order to get all thirteen colonies into states. The Electoral College was a, was a compromise. The Senate was a compromise. The Bill of Rights was was a was a essentially. Madison trying to, to assure the anti-federalists that the federal government wasn't wasn't going to be too too strong wasn't in the original design so all, all of this was you know I mean certainly it was talked about in terms of principles but you know it could have been any any number of other principles if those principles had been the principles that everybody was able to to compromise around. Well, Senator Lee, you've. You've written a book about the Constitution. You've thought deeply uh, on the Constitution and how it came together and what it represents. What's your what? What do you think about what what our co-host here, Lee Drutman, has just said? Lee's right. Uh, there are compromises throughout the entirety of the Constitutional Convention. There were compromises that have followed from it ever since then. The fact that there were compromises doesn't refute the notion that there were principles at play. And just as importantly, it also doesn't dismiss the relevance of what happened, what was discussed there. The fact that they came together uh, and came up with a list of principles that would govern the government 
that would constrain the, the, the collective use of force uh, through this thing that we've come to know as our federal government. Doesn't mean that they were just a ship without a rudder. They were trying to go in a particular direction. And so, yeah, they compromised. Uh, but they did so in a way that has lasting consequences. And I think it's important for us to remember to study what they agreed on there, how those words were understood at the time. Because in order for that compromise to have any lasting impact and the, the principles that were embedded within that series of compromises, we have to understand uh, what contributed to them. What, what do you think, Julia? Right. I think so. Here's a question that I have it that builds out of this notion of the founding as a time of of ideas. I I pretty much buy that. As usual, I'm going to take my like wishy washy position between the the Walner and the Drutman viewpoints. And I want, but I want to pose this to to Senator Lee. I uh, had a chance to engage a little bit with your book, Our Lost Constitution, and. It occurs to me that the way that James has posed the situation, um, this reading of the founding as being rooted in it, in the intellectual currents of the time, and then the the argument that I understand from um, from what you've written and a number of, of people who embrace this sort of constitutionalist position, I guess I'll call it originalist, you can correct me if that's wrong, that we have these moments, um, or we have these ideas that are associated with the Constitution that come out of that specific moment. And then those are the things that are kind of baked into the Constitution that now we either, you know, adhere to or not. And it seems to me like actually, if we root if we root uh, our institutions and our documents in their intellectual history, that that is actually a stronger argument for a, a living and evolving constitution that's applied to the intellectual currents and ideas of, of a particular time. Okay, I'm glad you raised that point. I think this is a helpful discussion point. I, I always struggle a little bit with the term living constitution because it's loaded. It has packed within it all kinds of assumptions. First of all, it, it is a, a useful tool who want to refer to their own interpretation of the Constitution as being a living one. Because after all, who wants to defend a Constitution that is dead? Uh, no one wants to describe that sort of thing. But the term is often used by people with whom I disagree. And it's often used, correct me if I mischaracterize this, it's often used in such a way that uh, is conveniently designed to allow the Constitution to be molded and shaped outside of the Article 5 structure that itself prescribes how the Constitution is to be modified. No one was operating under any delusional belief in 1787 at the time these words were negotiated and drafted and signed. And over the next couple of years as they were being debated and discussed uh, while they were being ratified, at no point did anyone believe that this would be a fixed point from which the law could never deviate, and that this was the only iteration of the Constitution, that this was somehow a finely wrought compromise uh, that, that was unamendable. It, the document itself contains the process by which it may be modified. And so in that respect, it is something that is able to change with the time, and we've, we've adopted 27 modifications to it. What I think is not appropriate is for us to pretend that because society changes and social conditions change, technology changes uh, and, and all kinds of uh, religious and other worldviews change, that that means we can put in the hands of judges and Supreme Court justices the power to modify the Constitution without going through the prescribed process. That's not okay, but that is often what is being communicated when somebody advocates for what they characterize as the living constitution. Yeah, and Senator, I, Julie and I have discussed this uh, briefly uh, in, past, um, uh, in past episodes. And one of the things that I like to remind people of is that, for instance, my view of conservatism, I think your view as well, is really it focuses on you know, engaging with the past in our tradition to understand what it is about that tradition that we need to keep and defend and preserve. What about that tradition that we need to reform and change and what about that tradition that do we need to reject? And the Constitution is, is the kind of architectonic structure. And our institutions are the structure 
in which we have that conversation. And they can be changed, of course, uh, as you say, with Article 5. But I think when we begin to pretend like that structure can be changed in other ways, for instance, via you know judicial decisions, then all of a sudden the structure itself is pulled down into the fray. And it no longer serves that 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 purpose of being the place where we go to to actually adjudicate our disagreements. And when that happens, in my opinion, I don't think we're engaged in self-government anymore. It's, it becomes about basically who can rule others through the ballot box. And, and in America, no one's meant to rule. The majority is not meant to rule. The minority is not meant to rule. It's But we have to have a place where we can do politics, to participate in the activity of politics. And the Constitution creates that institutional structure for us to do that. And I think the living Constitution, the idea of it, undermines um, that structure uh, very much. Yeah, I think that's right. And we have to remember that in many, many ways, the whole reason we have a Constitution relates to the fact that we knew as a society, we accepted then, and I hope we still accept today, that inherent in government uh, are certain risks associated with human nature. I'm inspired in many things, but in particular in, in my devotion to the text and history of the Constitution and maintaining the legitimacy of that document. I'm inspired by James Madison's words in Federalist 51 uh, when he explained that, you know, if we were, if we were angels, we wouldn't need a government. And if we had access to angels to run our government, we wouldn't need all these rules to restrict and restrain what people do. But alas, we're not angels. We don't have access to angels to run our government. So we need a whole lot of rules to define and constrain what government may do, what it may not do, the circumstances in which it may act, and how we may go about changing those fundamental principles of law. And so it's, it's because of this aspect of human nature that human beings, while redeemable, are flawed, they're covetous, they're envious, and they, they will do through force, sometimes individually and sometimes collectively through government, um, things that are not helpful. And that's, that's dangerous. We can't ever lose sight of that. We do lose sight of that to the extent we drift from the Constitution. Julia, what's your, what's your reaction um, so- to that? I, I mean, I have a, a number of reactions. I take the point about the fact that living constitution is used politically. I mean, I think that that all constitutional language is used in this instrumental way and that it does exact it very much puts people in the position of having to defend the dead constitution. And that's not that's not really um, language that people in that position would have um, would necessarily have embraced point, you know, point taken. And we certainly all do that at times. One question I have about the evolution of the Constitution uh, shifts us over to the presidency, which you do you do talk about a bit in the book that I was uh, I was listening to on, on Audible, uh, Senator Lee, but also is on my mind because I teach the American presidency. And one of the things I really hammer home to my students is that of those 27 amendments, they don't clarify very many, if any of the issues around executive power. That Some of them change the way presidents are, are selected and put into office, you know, at the margins. But all of these big questions that have faced us from the founding have all been interpreted and have evolved in some ways quite a bit through our informal understandings and and to some degree jurisprudence around what the executive branch does. So I'm curious what these ideas we kind of, you know, we touched on the the courts story. What is the executive branch story of this and, and how far back does executive drift from the constitution, if that's accurate? How far back does that go? The drift within the constitutional framework away from constitutional constraints really starts at the very beginning. It starts as soon as we began operating under the Constitution. This is one of the reasons why I believe it's so dangerous for Congress to continue to delegate unfettered discretion over to the executive branch. Now, this started from the very beginning. I I like to believe that George Washington was more restrained, uh, and most presidents really over the first century to a century and, and a half after we had adopted the Constitution were relatively limited in what they could do. There were still abuses, in, including a lot of abuses by presidents who were very revered. Thomas Jefferson, for example, is a revered president who really abused his executive authority in many ways, went after political rivals including Aaron Burr, rather mercilessly. He had him tried 
for treason, a, a capital offense, on what most historians have regarded as a shockingly narrow evidentiary basis. And he did so because he was a political rival. We saw a major shift during the 20th century, uh, starting most aggressively during the New Deal era, when Congress brought about some major transformations of power, shifting power away first from the states and moving it to Washington. And then within Washington, upon realizing uh, that, that Congress had arrogated to itself so much power that it traditionally hadn't had, and so much power that it didn't quite know how to manage it, it started delegating to executive branch agencies, in essence, the power to make law. And so this is a, a very long neglected uh, and dangerously ignored warning in the Constitution. It's no coincidence, I believe, that the very first clause of the first section of the first article of the Constitution says that all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. You cannot make federal law without going through Congress and without following the formula prescribed in Article I, Section 7. And yet, over the last 80 years, it's exactly what we've been doing. The executive branch has grown in power. Uh, the government as a whole has become less accountable. And this has occurred under the flawed leadership of, of Senates, of Houses of Representatives, and White Houses of every conceivable partisan combination. But back, back to your question and your point, it's interesting that the courts here have been very slow, very reluctant to get involved in this mess. I think mistakenly so, but they haven't wandered in much to how much power can be delegated uh, from the legislative branch over to the executive branch. And this has created a really unduly frighteningly power executive. I think all Americans ought to be worried about that. So I want to ask a question here, and it's more about being a senator with, with these ideas and these principles and existing in a in, in, a, in a real world in which all of these things that you described have certainly happened. I guess the question that I have is having these ideas and yet the, the, having the lived experience of being a senator and, and not you know, having to, to make probably concessions here and there, either for, for, for party line votes or just for not having votes at all. I mean, how, how does that tension sit with you and how do you overcome it? And what, what is that lived experience of having these ideas and yet living in a world that makes them very hard to, to realize? Well, it's, it's not easy. But then again, the legislative process was never intended to be easy. Standing up for individual liberty, uh, for basic human rights was never easy. Uh, one still has to do it. Throughout much of our history, we have operated in one way or another in defiance of what our laws, in many cases, what our constitution even says. You know, for about a century after the Civil War and after the adoption of the Civil War Amendments, we still lived with many of the badges of slavery, in many cases under the oppression of state law, even though those things had been outlawed following the Civil War with the adoption of the Civil War Amendments. And yet we continued to push for them. The fact that certain ideas are unpopular they, that they run contrary to concentrated economic, political, and social interests of any given era. Don't excuse us from having to move things in the right direction, from bending the arc, so to speak. Uh, we know that over time, we can make headway if people believe in something, if they're consistent in how they articulate those beliefs. And in particular, if they are beliefs that uh, also happen to enhance a government's ability to respect the dignity of the immortal human soul, they tend in the end to gain victories. They can be small, incremental, and, and far too long in the waiting, but they'll eventually come. And I believe that our efforts to restore things like the separation of powers will be well worth it, and history will look favorably uh, on our efforts to restore those things. But do you feel like you're making progress? I mean, it seems like the direction is 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 in the opposite. All of the forces are pushing in the opposite direction, and that politics as a kind of lived experience and and not 
a set of ideals has been pushing in the opposite way for a long time. And I think there are, are, are lots of, of underlying institutional incentives that have pushed it in that direction. We've explored some of those themes in, in other of our shows, including polarization and the deference of the party in Congress to the to the White House or the knee-jerk opposition. But I guess back to the original question is, does it feel like you're making any progress? Because it seems to me like everything is moving in the in the opposite direction. And that's the flow of politics for for many good reasons. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think generally speaking, things are moving in the opposite direction relative to where they should be. And they have been over the last 80 years. And it, it has been an almost unmitigated departure from the constitutional norm. Nonetheless, I'm encouraged by a couple of things. First is an abstract point. I don't know whether he ever, in fact, even said this, but there's a a line attributed to Winston Churchill uh, where he supposedly said, the American people can always be counted on to do the right thing after they've exhausted every other alternative. I don't think Churchill necessarily meant that as a compliment toward the American people, but I take it as such, and and I think he's right. I think it's one of the things that has differentiated our republic from its peer nations around the world. Another thing that gives me a degree of hope here is the fact that today, much more so than 10, 15, 20 years ago, people are talking about these things. There's now a lot more, there's at least some bipartisan awareness of the fact that we've drifted pretty steadily from both federalism and separation of powers over the last 80 years that this is no accident, that a drift from one facilitates the other. What we're starting to see now is some awareness for the fact that this, this really isn't a partisan or a political ideological issue. It, it is instead a, a matter of sound governance. You've got some people, I'm told, some people uh, on the left and in the Democratic Party aren't always comfortable with the current administration and things this current administration decides to do. And this has brought up a lot of conversations on the left about why it is that we've delegated so much power to the executive branch. At the same time, when you've got decisions made by this administration that people don't like, people particularly say in Congress, particularly maybe in the House of Representatives, where there's currently a Democratic majority, you'll sometimes see states taking a different approach than the federal government. And you'll actually see a lot of progressives today making arguments for federalism. In fact, I've seen a number of those made in the last week alone. I saw a number of those made in the wake of President Trump's decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accords a couple of years ago. Little by little, we're seeing something of a a quiet, nascent renaissance of federalism and separation of powers. The ideas are there. You've got proposals like the RAINS Act that are designed to help restore this balance that are slowly but surely gaining some momentum. And I take great comfort in that. Um, Senator, I want to uh, touch on something I, I know Julia thinks about as well. And, and that's the question of polarization and, and to try to help our listeners step into the shoes of senators uh, like yourself um, today and the challenges you face. But for those of you who don't, for those uh, people who don't know you, you're an incredibly decent, uh, kind person. Even your opponents uh like you, which is a good thing, I think. But acting on one's ideas in Congress is very difficult. And politics is very difficult when you're dealing with really important issues to people that they think are existential in nature, whether they be global warming or terrorism or, you know, with indefinite detention or healthcare and the coronavirus and all these other things. And when you're dealing with these big issues and you senators exert, or even House members as well, um, they use the rules and they try to achieve their goals and adjudicate the concerns of their constituents inside the institutions that were built for this purpose. What's that like? I mean, I have an idea of it because I remember some very intense times were uh, standing side by side with you, sir. But but can you share with for our listeners what what is that like? When and and how do you avoid treating your opponents, those with whom you disagree, as equals? I mean, treating them not as equals, but as someone that you wish to try to conquer and rule, which is which is fatal to the the constitutional structure of our government and to free society. For me. This part's easy. This is the easiest part of the job for me. My personality is such that I like people. I really like my colleagues. There are very few colleagues in the Senate I've ever worked with who I 
I don't genuinely enjoy. And I especially enjoy uh, my Democratic colleagues. Some of my very favorite people happen to be at the opposite end of the political spectrum from where I am. So the fact that I genuinely like them makes it easier in and of itself. But for me, there's, there are some added features that also make this a rewarding part of the job and one that it's relatively easy. In other words, when somebody at the, in the other political party or at the opposite end of the political spectrum for me disagrees with me on a particular issue, I always have to remember that there are plenty of issues as to which I'm a heretic within my own political party. A number of civil liberties issues, privacy issues, criminal justice issues, a um, number of things like that have worked very closely with Democrats and have at times been more closely aligned with many Democrats than I am with many Republicans. So the fact that I disagree with people, uh, uh, Democratic colleagues on one issue doesn't give me time really to stop and think of that person as an enemy because I know that the next day or the next week or the next month, my Democratic colleagues may well be my allies on something else. So I try not to burn bridges and I, I try not to take any of that personally. It also makes it easier when I remember the fact that they feel as passionately as I do about their political ideology. And they represent different constituencies than I do. And uh, that helps to depersonalize it and to lower the temperature in the room, so to speak. And if I could try to put that in a more general way um, for our, especially our academic listeners, I think the process you're referring to is an ongoing process that, that, that lacks a beginning and a definite end. And that's something unique to politics. It's not a fabrication. It's not a production process where you have a beginning and you have an end. And then everything in that process is basically a means to achieve that end. And politics isn't now. It's an ongoing activity in which equals participate to achieve their goals on behalf of the people they represent inside Congress. And when that happens, you need the rules. You need the institution because that's the place where you go to, to do those things. And, and I think that's a very critical point. And I think you exemplify that, or at least you, you, your behavior in Congress demonstrates that, I think, very clearly and very well. I, I want to ask a question of you, Senator, which is how unique do you think you are in that respect? Because uh, it seems to me that there's a, a lot of vitriol and a lot of name calling uh, that, that those of us who are not in the, in the institution every day see. Uh, and certainly there's a lot written about the hyperpartisanship of Congress. So question is, how unique do you think you are in, in the, what you've just described? And if you don't feel as though you are unique in that respect, that actually there's a lot more people who like each other across the aisle, then, then why do we see such performative hyperpartisanship? In response to your first question, I don't think I'm all that unique in that regard. And I see most of my colleagues get along pretty well with members of the other party. Um, I can't get inside of anybody else's head, so I don't know exactly how other people feel at any given moment, but based on what I'm able to observe as their colleague, I think most of the people feel in many ways the same way that I just described myself as feeling toward members of the other party within the Senate. As to your second question, uh, why don't people perceive that? Well, I'm reminded of a baseball game back, it was in junior high. It was um, mid-80s. The Braves played the Padres one day in the middle of the summer, and a brawl broke out. There was a, a, an all-out fight. Both dugouts were emptied. The players were just fighting each other for like, I don't know, 20 minutes straight. Never seen anything like that. I've often thought about that game. I have no idea who won that game. I, I, I don't remember uh, how either of them did in the playoffs that year. All I remember is that brawl, because that brawl was newsworthy. It was the only reason it even made the news highlights that day or that week. And that's what people see. Now, we don't get into physical brawls in the Senate. That doesn't happen. Sometimes we'll exchange sharp words with each other while the cameras are on. And very often, people, as they're walking outside the door, will shake each other's hands, congratulating each other on presenting their ideas well. It doesn't always happen, but it happens a whole lot more than you might think. But just as importantly, most of what you see in the Senate isn't necessarily newsworthy. 
it's the legislative equivalent of the ball being thrown over and over again across the plate. Sometimes the batter hits a home run. Sometimes the batter hits a single or a ground rule double or gets walked or is struck out uh, or hits a, a fly out to left field that's either caught or dropped. Most of that stuff isn't really newsworthy. And so too with the Senate. Most of it, even most of the legislative accomplish, uh, accomplishments uh, don't really grab all that much news. And yet that's the feeling I think most senators have about each other. It's much more consistent with areas where we agree than where we disagree. And even where we disagree, I don't think most members take it all that personally. There are exceptions, but they are exceptions, not the rule. Well, I'll jump in and ask another question. Actually, I want to go back to the to the conversation about Democrats and progressives uh, getting enthusiastic about federalism now that uh, Trump has been in the White House. And I confess that I have a, a bit of uh, a cynicism about the, the genuineness of that conversion on the left, because I think it would almost certainly go away when there's a Democrat uh, again in the White House, just as it went away when Obama was in the White House. And similarly, like having seen Republicans for a long time talk about the importance of localism, uh, I've been surprised how uh, aggressively Trump administration and some Republicans in Congress have gone after so-called sanctuary cities, which would seem to be the principle of localism in action. So, which gets back to, to my earlier take, which is that maybe these ideas are just out there for people to use in moments in which it, it serves their political ends and then get dropped when it no longer serves their political ends. Am I being too cynical? Yes. Yes, okay. you are. Uh, let me explain why I, th I think that. First of all, um, as to your first point, you're totally right when you say that Republicans are not always consistent advocates of federalism. In fact, that is very true. If anything, it's an understatement. I'll give you that one. The example you provided about sanctuary cities cuts exactly the opposite direction, I think. It, it at least doesn't support your point. I can give you a thousand others that do, but that one doesn't. The discussion about sanctuary cities actually connected to the opposite point in ways that might not be obvious to most people. The sanctuary cities discussion really turns on the allocation of federal funds and whether or not uh, federal funds that are provided to state and local law enforcement personnel are going to continue to flow when state and local law enforcement agencies decide to stop providing certain assistance when it comes to the enforcement of uh, federal laws dealing with illegal immigration. And so that um, doesn't really prove the point. This is one of those areas. Uh, Article 1, Section 8 gives the power to adopt laws governing immigration and naturalization to Congress. It's one of the 18 clauses of Article 1, Section 8, where nearly all of Congress's power can be found, gives us authority over that. And insofar as states and localities are getting federal funds specifically to help with that, uh, that too is within Congress's power. Now, th there are a thousand, uh, even a million examples that cut the other direction. That one just doesn't help you. Uh, All right. As to the so, point so let's, let's let, throw me a softball here. Uh, 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 on which point? Oh, 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 what's an example that you think cuts, cuts in the direction of Republicans not being consistent on federalism? Um, can identify almost any of the areas in which the federal government's involved. Let's take, for example, the most widely accepted view, which is that K through 12 public education is and properly should be outside the role of the federal government, except perhaps if you're talking about something within the District of Columbia or a U.S. territory or a federal enclave outside the United States, a military base or an Indian reservation or something like that. It's a great example where outside the categories I just mentioned, the federal government really ought to stay out. And yet you can count very few Republicans in Congress who will aggressively, consistently vote against legislation that in some instances expands the role of the federal government. And that's disappointing. As to your cynicism on whether the Democratic members of Congress are sincere in their expressions of willingness to move toward federalism. You may be right, but I still have hope there. And the reason I have hope is that I think 
the way our system is set up is designed eventually to bring us back to the way it's supposed to work. In other words, we like to think that we are so different than we were in 1787, that we're so much more modern. After all, we no longer are an agrarian society. I don't know why, but people use, love to use the term agrarian society when explaining why the Constitution, in their view, no longer works or why federalism no longer works. Uh, we no longer have the horse and buggy as our most sophisticated means of transportation. And yet, in many ways, we're a lot more like that society than we are willing to accept. The Founding Fathers understood that there was significant geographic diversity and diversity of political viewpoint, diversity in terms of how people wanted government to operate uh, with, within the country. So much so that they knew that things would work better if most decisions in government, at least most decisions that didn't have an obvious and unavoidable national scope to them should be made at the state and local level. You, you look simply even at the political acrimony in this country that you referenced earlier, earlier, acrimony that is there, it's in some ways exaggerated, but it does exist. A lot of the reason why you have as much contention surrounding the work of the federal government today as you do is because the federal government's doing much more than it was intended to do. And it's, it's representing constituencies that are themselves very diverse uh, and, and unique in their own views. In other words, I have it on good authority. Most of the people in Vermont would much prefer a single-payer, government-run, government-funded healthcare system. One of the reasons why I'm not likely to move to Vermont, but they have every right to feel that way. If we didn't have such a large federal footprint on everything, including healthcare, Vermont would actually have a much easier time setting up a single-payer, government-run, government-funded healthcare system in Vermont, and it might well work there. I don't know. But people in Utah and Wyoming and Texas might feel very, very differently, and in fact, they do. When we make as many decisions, federal decisions, as we do, we, we narrow the possibility for true compromise and for agreement and for allowing more people to get more of what they want out of government. We for force more people to get less of what they want out of government and more of what they don't want. That's not fair. In the long run, it doesn't work. And I, I think that's why we're going to start seeing a, a federalism renaissance here in the next decade or two. Julia, you've been uh, very quiet here as you um, are weighing all of this that's being said. And as we're running uh, short on time here, I wanted to to, to see what, you're, what you think of all this. And and where you're coming down now on the question of the importance of ideas and the role they play in contemporary politics. Yeah, I have a couple of, of thoughts in it. it. It's sort of rooted in this um, this notion of the Constitution and the Constitution as a kind of carrier of somewhat fixed ideas. Um, and one of them is kind of speaks to something Lee was was already alluding to, which is what happens when our when our view of what the Constitution says is at odds with the with our substantive political preferences and it seems like the answer to that tends to be what the senator just said which is that in a state or a locality you do what you want but i i feel like there are going to be instances in which that's not feasible one obvious problem there is that you know i'm sitting here in wisconsin in a very uh, very purple very divided state is that the the state is not always the um is not always much of a unified political unit but also that I think even even if we look back to the founding, or even if I take the senator's premise that we haven't changed that much and it's not that relevant that we were, we're a more industrialized society, which is fine. Um, but even in the beginning of this country's history, we were still pretty integrated across state lines in many ways. People's lives occurred in ways in which you know multiple states were involved in that. A lot of the, the clear and stark divide, this sort of layer cake federalism, simply wasn't tenable even it was early as as early 19th century so that's one set of thoughts that i had the other set of thoughts that i had is also goes back to our polarization discussion and this is a discussion again that i often have with my my students and this is a very real and concrete thing to me because i am trying to help them become people who can navigate this polarized world in a good faith and constructive way. Um, and for many of them, this, this situation of polarization is the only thing that they have known politically. And so I really try to impress upon them that they should approach everyone as if their beliefs, um, their political beliefs are sincere and in good faith. But I find that, that the pushback on this is often rooted in constitutional language. 
that if, if your opponents are interpreting the Constitution wrong, it's a lot harder to get your, your mind around the idea that they're, um, they're acting in good faith. And I wonder what um what the the reaction and response to that might be so you can see i've been i've been like ruminating on this holding this all uh back this whole time but here it is those are those are great points i'm happy to hit each of them as i've heard them correctly i think you've raised three separate points start with the first one yeah you're right um there's still a lot of disagreement within states even a state like mine which is regarded as, as much more of a red state there's still disagreement uh, in your state, in Wisconsin, it's much more purple. It's a little bit more of an even mix of Republicans and Democrats. And um, even in other states that lean much more one way or the other, you're still not going to have widespread agreement. But there's still possibility for more agreement on a more local level than there is on a purely national level. Statewide, there are in many circumstances things that, well, perhaps not acceptable to uh, people nationwide in either political party might work on a state level. Moreover, it's important to remember that cities, counties, and other municipalities are political subdivisions of the states themselves. That is materially different than the relationship between the federal sovereign and the states. The states are not political subdivisions of the federal government. So in a state like Wisconsin, getting back to your point, the state is actually free to say, okay, maybe there's not enough consensus on this or that issue for state legislation, and maybe we'll have the, the counties or the cities or some other municipal authority handle those, even where that isn't possible, at least within a state, like a state like Wisconsin. Once a compromise is reached or a, a law is passed, if it proves acceptable, then the experiment works, everybody's happy. If it doesn't work and it's a failure, you can turn that thing around a lot faster. It's a lot easier uh, and, and faster to do a 180 driving a jet ski than it is an aircraft carrier. And states relative to the federal government are a jet ski. The federal government's more like an aircraft carrier. With regard to your second point, at the time of the founding, yeah, we there was a lot of integration, interdependence, uh, economically, socially, and otherwise. I think that actually bolsters the point I'm trying to make there. Even though we are more integrated today and modern technology, modern means of transportation, communication, make that even more possible, there was still a lot of interaction between people in different states back then. And yet it was still understood that when Congress was given the power to regulate trade or commerce, as the word was used at the time, between the several states with four nations and with the Indian tribes, that was different than saying Congress may regulate anything and everything that when measured in the aggregate has a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And so that's one of the ways in which I think we are not quite as different as many like to imagine from the founding generation. Finally, with regard to the polarization point, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, I, I take your point one step further and say that anything, whether it's um, in many cases, Sometimes people, you will use constitutional arguments in order to discredit and delegitimize an opposing viewpoint. That's wrong, and we, we shouldn't do that. If That is, if what we are trying to do in that moment is say that the person who disagrees with us is a bad person, and his or her ideas are therefore bad because they are bad people. I don't think that the fact that some people will use the Constitution as um, as leverage in that kind of an argument should deter us from making such an argument, however. I think that's actually the, in many ways, the, the least emotionally volatile ground upon which to make the argument. I actually have great respect uh, for people who are willing to engage in the constitutional substance, get to the text of the document itself to come up with an argument in that regard. Uh, I've had many conversations with people who are at the opposite end of the political spectrum or an op at the opposite end of a, of a particular constitutional issue from me, who I'm able to respect, especially when they're able to come up with an actual constitutional argument. But I, I think you, you touch on something very important, which is that for us to have a dialogue that's helpful and productive and that it avoids polarization, we need as a whole to stop using 
arguments that suggest or imply or and sometimes overtly argue that someone is immoral uh, or indecent simply because they interpret a provision of the Constitution differently than we do. It doesn't mean that the analysis of the constitutional language is important. It is, but it's, it's because it's important that we need to respect those differences and, and not call someone an evil or try to discredit them categorically uh, because they disagree. I think that's a fabulous point to, to close our discussion. Unfortunately, we're running a little bit over our time now, but I think this has been a fabulous discussion. I mean, we can't, we can't delegitimize people in their ability to participate in politics based on their views and still maintain a free society. But, you know, I think our discussion here today has got me thinking a lot about the ideas and, and, the, and the role that they play in the Constitution and in, in its formation and in contemporary politics and how we got to where we are today and, and their relationship to economic self-interest and their relationship to the social environment in which they are kind of birthed, if you will, or at least cultivated and, and nurtured and changed over time. And I think it's been very helpful to hear about the challenge that people who want to act on their ideas in the political sphere, like yourself, Senator, the challenge that you all face in, in trying to do that. And you know, it's been pleasant uh, to, to discover, to learn that things aren't necessarily as bad as they may appear to be all the time. I think that's an, it's certainly encouraging to me. Um, and I think we've uh, really discussed some new ways of thinking about federalism and how uh, these ideas aren't necessarily f uh, for one party or the other. They, they work for everybody, potentially. So, you know, with all of that said, I, I just really want to thank you for joining us, for spending so much of your time with us um, to discuss uh, to discuss these questions today and, and the role that ideas play in politics. And, uh, and we wish you well. We hope that your self-quarantine goes well and that you, uh, that you are um, up and at him pretty soon. So thank you. Yes, thank you, Senator. Thank you. Oh, thanks to each of you for letting me join you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, this is another episode of Politics in Question. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.